Hello and welcome to Show Love. I'm Bronwyn Murphy. It's a strange time in the world right now. Maybe a time when we should be looking after each other and our planet a bit more than we had. What is happening in our world? It really is a good time to get closer to nature. Steve Smith, Chair of Directors UK, helps make television green, advising, guiding and encouraging sustainable activities in all aspects of programme making. Here he helps put climate change into layman's terms for us to know how to love our earth a little bit better. Today I'm joined by a BAFTA award-winning television director, but we're not going to be talking about that as such right now. We're going to be focusing on your passion for sustainability and the environment. Welcome, Steve Smith. Hello, Roman. Hello, Hi. thank you so much for doing this. Um, we've had various chats about uh, climate change, and your knowledge and passion always stands out to me and shines through. And I'm so glad, glad you've agreed to do this podcast with me to help us understand what's happening to our world and how we can help it. Firstly, you are an environmental production consultant. What does that involve? Well, basically, I've been sort of concerned about climate change for a hell of a long time. And I think, actually, um, about 20 years ago, I moved away from living in London down to Wiltshire, to the countryside. And I think what's true is when you are in the countryside, you're sort of closer to nature. So you tend to sort of see weird things going on and start going, ooh, that's a bit odd, you know. So so uh, kind of things flowering at odd times of the year or kind of animals sort of, you know, like birds getting confused as to whether they need to build nests and things in the middle of winter because the winter's not as cold as it used to be. And, you know, crops kind of suffering because they're not growing at the right times of the year and water drying up when there usually is water in the streams and the rivers. So, you know, I suddenly became very aware that, that things were, were kind of changing about 20 years ago. And um, so sort of read up more about this stuff and, um, you know, became concerned about it. And then a friend of mine who lived in, in this sort of neighbouring village to me came up one day to see the Graham Norton Show. And she was someone who was um, an environmental consultant and had done all this at university. And I gave her a lift home and driving back down to Wiltshire in the car afterwards, she sort of said... You know, this TV lark, it's not very environmentally friendly, is it? You know, all the lighting and the air conditioning and the heating and the kind of, you know... And and, and we were at the studio, at the London studios at that time, and she was sort of saying, you know, in reception, all the kind of heating was really hot and it was kind of all unnecessary. And we got chatting about this and I started thinking more about our industry and what we needed to do to sort of try and address this. And went away and did some investigation. And then I found out that BAFTA, um, who obviously give out all the awards and that's, that's what they're known for, but um, BAFTA had a, a division there called Albert. And Albert is the sort of home of sustainability in the TV industry. And uh, there was a guy there called Aaron Matthews who had just sort of started trying to work on how to address these things. So I contacted Aaron to sort of find out, you know, whether I could help him get involved in any way. And uh, I did. Um, and one of the things that Albert do is they um, they kind of measure the carbon footprints for all TV programs. Yeah, it's like a calculator. Or something. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and you now start to see it at the end of credits. So yeah, you kind of it's see everywhere. a logo, the yeah. BAFTA Albert logo, which yeah. shows that programs have started sort of taking measures to address this sustainability. So I sort of got involved with that. And one of the things that I started doing was teaching a carbon literacy course to the TV industry. You know, in in my spare time, whenever I can. 
which um, is a one-day course which really tells people both about the science of climate change, because I think it's important people know what's going on, and then also particularly how to address it, um, how to make programmes in more sustainable ways. Because there are lots of things that we can do to sort of cut carbon footprints if we sort of take some time to think about it. So, um, so I started doing that. And as a result of that, um, you know, I try to sort of encourage productions I work on to be as green as possible. So I sort of teach this part of the time. And then what became very apparent is, you know, making our programmes in a more sustainable way is a really important thing for us to do. We, we need to do that. But if you think about it, the television industry has another huge role to play, which is communicating about climate change to audiences. Because, you know, we, we for most people, are, are their main source of kind of news and information. And if we don't tell the stories about climate change, how are audiences, how are the general public going to know what needs to be done? Exactly. This is what I love about you. I'm not going to have to ask you any questions. <laughs> it's so brilliant. We're so lucky to have you. And I'm always like asking you questions. Right. So uh, being the environmental uh, production consultant, you go in and you, you help people. You say this is how you're going to you know, remove your carbon footprint, as it were. Yeah, so, you know... What you can do is you can sort of look at a production at the beginning of it and sort of work out ways that you can sort of reduce carbon impacts and carbon footprints. And there are three really big things that you need to sort of focus on. The biggest thing is your energy. You know, um, for everyone, whether it's at home or whether it's in the workplace, the single biggest thing anyone can do to reduce their carbon footprints is get their energy from a renewable energy supply. I read up on this and energy is the worst thing, isn't it, for, for... For, for, most, for most people, um, kind of energy will account for about 60% of your carbon footprint. You yeah. know? Uh, so, so what I'm talking about is where you get your electricity from. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of the electricity companies now are sort of doing so-called green tariffs, but some of them are sort of a bit of greenwash. They're not really genuine green tariffs. It's there greenwash are, where you're like kind of lying, making yeah, it Yeah, well, when, yeah, so it's when you're sort of saying you're doing you're something, but you're well. not doing it as well as you could do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the companies that do really brilliant green tariffs are good energy, for example, so they're based actually not far from me down in, in the southwest. Is that who you're with? Uh, no, I'm actually with Ecotricity. So oh, okay. e- Ecotricity, again, are based down in the southwest. So these two companies um, kind of basically get all their energy that they sell from renewable sources. Whereas some of the other energy companies do this thing where they they buy what's known as Rego certificates, which are better than nothing, but mm. they're not actually creating new green energy. They're actually buying sort of excess energy from somewhere else, which means they can still produce their dirty. So it's not energy. as renewable. It's not as renewable. And, and so not, I don't think many people know about this. So how many? companies are there energy companies that do well there are, there are loads of energy companies you know so other ones are sort of people like octopus and bulb you know which are which are good in fact recently which magazine did a really good article about this so i think you can kind of google that and uh, there's a big sort of article online where it tells you um which of the energy tariffs are genuinely green ones so all, but, your, all your big ones british gas and power all of those well they have green tariffs mm. but they're not as green as, as the ones you're as saying. the ones I'm talking about. Right. So, um, I'm going so, to look into that. So look into it. And, and of course, you know, in the past, often getting a green energy tariff was more expensive. These days, the prices have come down and actually it's, it's closer. One of the great things for our industry is that good energy um, do this thing that BAFTA coordinated called creative energy. So creative energy is a group buying electricity scheme for the, the film and TV industry. 
Because one of the things that we know is that if you're a big organisation like British Telecom or BBC or ITV, you can negotiate really competitive electricity deals with some of the big generators. Right. If you're a small company, you don't necessarily use as much energy, so you don't have the buying power to get those really good deals. So what BAFTA did is they got together with Good Energy and they produced this scheme called Creative Energy, which is um, basically a cheap... Um, renewable energy scheme so anyone working in the industry can apply to go onto that scheme and you'll get the kind of the discounted prices that have been negotiated and it means it means that your energy is 100% renewable so if you're a small production company Mm. working from a small office and you want to have renewable energy you can join this this scheme yes now guys it's really good yeah that's incredible so 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 the big thing is always what we talk about in the industry is sort of the difference between carbon footprints and carbon toe prints now toe prints are the things that we can sometimes always get obsessed about so things like recycling paper recycling plastic mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and you know, recycling and reusing batteries and stuff like that. These are all important things and we should all be doing them as a matter of course, but sometimes we get really obsessed about those mm-hmm. and forget the big picture. So the big picture things are always your energy, your travel, and then the stuff you kind of, you know, buy and make, you know, the kind of the big things that you have, you know, the, you know, if you're, if you're talking about television program, it may well be your sets, you know. How yeah, well, on your website, you you've, uh, you've written, um, what, what it takes to make one hour's worth of television. Yeah, you've done um, a lot of research. I have, I did. <laughs> oh, well, I thought, I can't come in and not know anything, because normally I'm like that, going, tell me this, tell me that. Uh, one hour telly, 13.5 tonnes of carbon dioxide, yeah. which sounds, sounds like a lot. I mean, and that, that's, and that's the average so what you need to remember is that, um, first of all, 13 tonnes of carbon, that's the equivalent is of running... Is that a foot or a toe? Foot or a toe. It's quite a big, hefty one. That's <laughs> the equivalent of, of the heating and gas for three homes, average UK homes a year. So wow. one hour of television that's is incredible. the equivalent of heating three homes for a year. So bear in mind how many hours of television and Absolutely. how many channels there are. And also just remember... The, that one hour is, is the average. So that includes programmes with really small carbon footprints. Um, if you're a big high-end drama, your carbon footprint is going to be something like 50, 60, or even more tonnes of carbon a year. Yeah. A bit, and people who aren't in television won't kind of understand what, what it is that we do that, that causes that. But you've got, uh, there's paint yeah. and boxes of paper. Uh, there's two, well, on average... Uh, 2,600 kilowatt hours of studio power, yeah. uh, 17 production office people needing their own power for laptops, what have you, uh, 1,000 litres of diesel, and then you've got hotel beds that people need to sleep in, and then 2,400 miles on a plane. Do you, do you go on a plane that often? I never go on a plane. I knew you were going to say that. Ever, ever. How do you get away? I haven't for, flown for 10 years at least. Do you go on a boat? Generally trains. Trains. Yeah. And then trains as well. Um, the edit. And then, you know, catering, batteries, like you say, water bottles. Yeah. Well, if you think about our industry, you know, we do a lot of stuff. We, we build things. We build yeah. big sets. We have studios that have kind of got lots of lights in them mm, and lots of energy, air yeah. conditioning and all that kind of stuff. Lots of electrical equipment. Um, you know, we have lots of people, if we're doing dramas in costumes and makeup, and then we've got kind of big cast members who have to be kind of transported from their homes. Yeah. Often, if you're on location, you need to stay in hotels. On top of that, you know, you've got sort of lots of travel. Um, you know, we, we, you know, if you think, and, and this is the irony in a way, if you think of something like one of David Attenborough's um, sort of 
nature programs, quite often they have huge carbon footprints because they're travelling around the world. With all those cameras and everything. You know, now one of the things we would say is that, you know, you don't always need to travel around the world to do these these kind of stuff. You can hire local crews in different countries which can kind of cut your your carbon footprint down. And more and more productions are now looking to do things in these kind of carbon-friendly ways where they don't have to sort of travel as much as they used to. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly noticed that on the studio floor, the first thing that went were the plastic bottles. Yeah. Nobody has them anymore. You've brought your own cup my here with cup. yourself. This is uh, an advert for Elstree Studios. Yeah. Which is, uh, <laughs> I'm sitting here with my plastic bottle, which I bought for the shop, which I didn't think through in front of you. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so after you've done that, you because um, you you help make television green, which is incredible that you've done so much as one person. Well, not really. I'm part of a team. I mean, there's a huge number of people. I mean, I I just do a very small bit. The the Al- the Albert team, you know, the full time mm. people at Albert that are sort of doing this. And what's interesting is as more and more production companies are sort of joining Albert as be- becoming members of Albert and affiliate members and contributing to the costs of this. Um, The Albert staff is slightly um, able to grow, and so they're doing much more. They're Mm. able to kind of um, work harder to sort of spread this message. Do you know why it's called Albert? I have a funny feeling somewhere along the line it might have had something to do with Albert Square at EastEnders. I don't know whether That's EastEnders might have, been, might have been one of the first people to, to adopt it. That's so. fantastic. Oh, right, that would make a lot of sense. So. So. That's a really good uh, fact. Um, so people will see that at the end of the credits. It also yeah, says it at the end so it of the says an album, an Albert Sustainable Programme. Yeah. Um, uh, so I know there'll be list, uh, people listening that don't really know what sustainability means. Could you put that into layman's terms? Well, <clears throat> I think sustainability is often seen as, as about carbon, cutting the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which it is. I would also say sustainability has a broader thing as well. It's about doing things in a fair way and making sure that you know, people are paid fairly, that people you know, are sort of looked after well. So I think there's a bigger aspect to it. But in terms of climate change, you know, the big thing about it is cutting the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So... Um, to understand that, you have to understand a bit about what's known as the greenhouse gas effect. Mm. And so um, our planet, if it wasn't for the greenhouse gases that surround us in the atmosphere, would be a frozen ball of ice floating in, in space, and there'd be, um, there'd be no life on it at all. The reason there's life on Earth is because we have these greenhouse gases that sort of surround the planet... And and what they do is they help trap some of the energy from the sun that kind of hits the planet, and they help trap it on the planet, which kind of allows the planet to warm up to the point where it can sort of sustain life. So a little bit of greenhouse gas is really good. Without it, it would just be this frozen ice ball. The problem that we've got is that um, since really this industrial revolution, when we started kind of digging up coal and burning coal, we've started burning fossil fuels and we've kind of increased the amount of fossil fuels that we burn. Now, fossil fuels, again, another one of those things. So they're coal, gas and oil, Mm -hmm. the sort of main fossil fuels. So when we burn these, um, they produce carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide builds up in the atmosphere and it stays there for a very, very long time. It it takes a hell of a long time. to. I think it takes about 200 years or so for the carbon that you release to actually kind of be reabsorbed naturally. So what happens is this builds up and builds up and builds up. 
And as it builds up, um, it's a bit like putting an extra duvet on the planet. So what it's doing is it's trapping more of the sun's energy and holding it in the earth. And is that why it's getting hotter? And that's why it's getting hotter. Right. So, um, and the reason we know this is that we measure it. Mm. So scientists have been able to measure the amount of carbon in the atmosphere very accurately. So there's a place called the Manoa Loa Observatory out in Hawaii, and they measure, measure the carbon in the atmosphere, the concentrations of it. And actually, if you're interested, you can go on their website, which is called um, Earth, uh, CO2.Earth. So that, that's the website, yeah. CO2.Earth. And you can see the kind of um, the measurements of CO2 in the atmosphere, and they show you how that's linked with temperature. And what we know is the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is currently standing at 415 parts per million. And that is double... It's, what, what it used to be before it used to be around about 200. 250 yeah. and what we think is sort of generally considered to be a sort of safe area is around 360 parts per million so, so um, we're not safe well uh, at 360 parts per million the temperatures are sort of what used to be the sort of average mm. for the industrial pre-industrial times once you go over that the temperatures start rising and um and so in order to sort of bring temperature rises down, we have to kind of start, put, we have to stop putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and then we have to find ways of absorbing the carbon dioxide that's there. And so is that simple photosynthesis that we all learn um, in biology? It sort of is in a way. Yeah. You know, so the carbon in the atmosphere is absorbed by trees. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why everyone is talking so much about the need for us to plant millions and millions mm. more trees, because... Trees are probably the most effective technology we have for absorbing carbon. Yeah. I mean, there are other people talking about um, technology, technological solutions like carbon capture and storage. So that's where you find a way of sucking the carbon out of the atmosphere. Wow, are they trying to make... Well, they're trying to do that. Yeah. And there's a lot of research going on into this area. But the problem is, um, whilst, whilst people are researching it, and there are kind of ways of doing this, it's not yet being done at the sort of scale that we need to sort of allow us to carry on pumping carbon into the atmosphere. And then they would have to then turn that into oxygen somehow, right? No, I think what, what they would do is find a way of kind of sucking it out and sort of storing it somewhere. So, for example, potentially storing it under the ocean bed and see, under, you know, possibly even oh. using old oil wells to kind of pump it in. I mean, there are other ways where I think they're trying to find ways of solidifying it in some way so you can sort of turn it into a solid... Um, form that then means it's it's not creating a problem of, of the oh, gas wow. in, in, the, in the atmosphere. And am I right in saying that over half of our CO2 is taken in by like a single-celled plankton type thing in the sea that then turns that into oxygen? I think I think sort of plankton is a good sink of CO2, it, yes, yeah. it's able to sort of... But, um, and that's where half of our oxygen comes from. I read that. Okay. Don't know, that's a, yeah. I, then, yeah. That's so, so the, uh, we have to look after our seas. Yeah. That, no, absolutely. And yeah. you know, our, our seas. You know, one of the, and one of the tragedies of this is that um, because of the increase in carbon in the atmosphere and the temperature rises, our oceans are now rising. And some people are sort of saying there's evidence to say that the oceans are rising. The temperature in the oceans is rising at a faster rate than the kind of land temperature yeah and as the oceans are getting warmer it's kind of causing havoc to sea life and also one of the big things is um the warmer oceans are becoming more acidic because the carbon reacts with the water and turns it into more of an acidic quality which is then bleaching our corals and destroying our corals i mean 
I think already over 90% of the coral reefs in Australia are sort of threatened. And, um, and when you think about the coral reefs, there are nursery slopes of the ocean. So that's where all the sort of smaller sea life kind of feed and get their nutrients. And so, of course, if you're damaging that, yeah. you're threatening kind of all the sort of fish species in the ocean as well. And then that just feeds on and then yeah, everyone else gets... Yeah, you know, there's huge um, numbers of worldwide population that rely on fish protein mm-hmm. for, for food. I looked at, a, this is a little bit off topic, but I look, looked at a tea shop by uh, the sea this weekend uh, in Deal, um, and I'm scared now that the ocean's going to rise, the sea will rise so much that that will be under the sea in 30, 50 years, whatever. Is that is that likely? Well, it's, it's if we don't do something very soon to sort of stop the temperatures rising, you know, already... Um, our sort of, uh, you know, the, the amount of uh, ice in Greenland melting is kind mm-hmm. of vast, you know, and sort of ice sheets in Antarctic. Um, and, yeah, that is going to lead to sea level rises. And already some of those sea level rises are built in. So whatever we do now um, isn't always going to stop all of that. But we need to make sure that it doesn't get any worse because there are lots of low-lying areas in the UK being an island that are threatened by that. But also, if you think about huge areas with massive populations like, you know, Bangladesh, you mm. know, that um, are threatened by rising sea levels. And, of course, you've got um, a lot of those low-lying nations, those small island states in the South Pacific, you know, places like Kiribati and Tuvalu um, that, you know, are very threatened. And already, mm. you know, the populations of those islands know at some point they're going to have to abandon them. Yeah, there was, there's some Indonesia or somewhere there. They're having to move their capital city because it's going under the water, which mm. is tragic. We already have. Um, there's a there's a small sort of town in North Wales where the council have already said that they feel in a few years you're going to have to abandon that town because um, it, they're not going to be able to sort of stop the sea level rising. That's horrendous. Mm-hmm. And and what with um, the, everything getting hotter. You know, Australia, again, with the coral reef, also having the fires, which uh, I know that you've um, been quite scared about talking to me about. But um, is it right that soon some areas of land, like Africa, will be inhabitable? Well... And then, therefore, will be overpopulated in other places? Yeah, I mean, what what you have to bear in mind is that already... um, kind of global temperatures have risen by an average of one degree or just over one degree since pre-industrial times. Mm. Now, that doesn't sound a lot, does it? Because no, it you doesn't. kind of think, well, in the UK, you know, one day it can be sort of freezing and the next day it can be 10 degrees. And you kind of go, well, that's, you know, sort of a 10 degree temperature yeah, difference. So yeah. how does one degree really affect that? But what, what you know, what you, what you realise is when that's averaged across the whole planet, it's actually a one degree temperature rise across the whole planet is a big difference. Mm. I mean, there are times I, I've got sort of graphics. If you remember the um, Beast from the East that we had, um, I think it was February 2018, wasn't mm. it? Yeah, when we so suddenly yeah, got this wind. really cold weather in yeah. February. Um, if you look at some uh, temperature graphics of the world for that, um, for that period of time, what you realise is it was colder in Europe, in mainland northern Europe, than it was in the Arctic Circle. So it would have been warmer in the Arctic wow. than it was in London. But, but weirdly, and that's really unusual. Last year in February was the hottest London had ever ever been recorded. In February. Yeah, in February. Yeah. Like so it's all over the place. It's it is all over the place. Which so what what is that why 
you know, climate change deniers are out there saying, well, it's either hot or it's cold, it's fine. What do you say to those people? Because there are a lot of people that deny it, i.e. Trump. Yeah, I think Trump's an odd one in that, you know, he may well be denying it. I think he kind of understands the science because one of the things I know is that um, Trump as a businessman Mm. is um, spending money um, building sea defence walls to protect some of his golf courses in Scotland and Ireland. So So he's, he's aware that, you know, his golf courses are threatened by rising sea levels. So, you know... But that, I, is I that think, not selfish, that it's his well, golf, but not he doesn't care about I, the world, then? I think he's choosing to sort of um, kind of play down climate change because he sort of feels that there's an economic advantage to America to sort of carry on burning fossil fuels. He's but actually that wrong. So what, well, yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, but in a way, what what's fascinating is that many of the sort of states in you know, in America are ignoring the kind of message that he's sending out. And a lot of the sort of the states and the sort of governors are actually taking their own measures to sort of address climate change and try to get to a net zero carbon um, position by 2050. And um, and then the other thing is that I think economically Trump is playing a sort of, perhaps it's a short-term win, but in the longer term, America is going to be disadvantaged if they don't start transitioning to more renewable energy because, you know, the Chinese are doing it. They understand that renewable energy is the future and to be at an economic advantage in the future, you need to be getting your energy from renewable sources. You know, the UK have actually been quite effective at reducing the amount of um, energy that come, comes from fossil fuel and closing kind of um, coal-fired power stations. And more of our energy is being generated uh, with renewable energy. And also, while we've been kind of cutting carbon, we've also been growing our economy. So the thought that in order to cut carbon damages the economy is not is not true. Actually, what we're seeing is kind of investment in greener jobs. And of course, you know, these technologies, once they're up and running, you know, once you've got solar panels on your roof and once you've got wind turbines that are being built... As long as the sun's shining and the wind's blowing, you know, you've got energy being yeah, generated. Yeah. So what it is the future? How how are our lives gonna change well, a little bit? I think I think one of the things is sometimes climate change is dressed up as banning people from doing things. So mm. you can't fly, you can't go on holiday, you can't eat meat and you can't do all these things. You can't eat meat is a big one at the moment, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's it is, but um, on the plus side of it, you know, think of the positives that come from it. You know, if we're not having kind of diesel and petrol burning in our engines and we've got cleaner air quality yeah. and we know that lots of people are suffering from asthma and respiratory problems because of our dirty air in our mm. cities, you know, so that's a huge positive. So will we all be driving electric cars in the future? Well, the government this week announced that they are banning all petrol cars and diesel cars after 2035. So they've brought that target forward. Wow. So, you know, that's inevitable now that, you know, we are going to have to be moving to electric vehicles. And, and what, what will happen about flying? Will that be affected? Well, flying, I, I think, you know, a lot of people question the sense of building another runway at Heathrow and say that's not compatible with our climate change goals. You know, at some point, you know, it's possible that you might get electric planes. At the moment, you know, that's not scalable um, anytime soon to be travelling on long distances in sort of big planes that we currently have. Um, you know, this week, you know, people at um, Heathrow were sort of saying that they're going to try and make the British aviation industry carbon neutral by 2050. 
And they claim that there are synthetic fuels that they can use to help do that that aren't using kind of fossil fuels. Um, I'm not sure that they're available at the scale yet to do that. Um, But, you know, these, again, are technological solutions. I think, actually, we need to encourage people not to fly as often. Mm. The truth is that most flights are actually business flights. Mm. And, you know, there's something like 10% of people that sort of account for something like 70% of flights. You know, so for your average family going on to the one holiday to Spain a year... That's not so much of a problem, you know, but what we need to do is we need to sort of stop the frequent flying that businesses Mm. do. And of course, when you now think about it, there are other solutions that allow you to sort of talk and communicate with people via Skype and and things like that. You know, so so do you necessarily always need to go and fly um, to sort of do business? In fact, in our industry, I know that, you know, Sometimes people used to think that going on a sort of foreign filming trip was a very glamorous and exciting thing to do. Actually, quite often it's really exhausting hard work. You're too busy working to be able to enjoy any time off. I quite enjoy it when, once in a while. Once in a while, <laughs> possibly. But, you know, often, often, you know, it's not as glamorous as it sounds. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes, perhaps in the past, you know, kind of business trips were sort of a bit of a perk for people. Mm. You know, hey, you can go to New York for a business trip, and people like that. I think we have to change our attitudes. And, you know, if you can do business in other ways, if you can communicate, you know, electronically and via sort of... But does that not mean that people will travel less? Well, I think people might travel less internationally. Mm. But then perhaps you can travel more and explore kind of the kind of amazing countryside that you've got in the UK. And also, you know, we need to improve our train travel. And, you know, it's possible to travel to to Europe quite happily by a train. Now going to Amsterdam, apparently, direct. No. And, I mean, I've I've recently been up in Scotland a lot um, for work. And, you know... Have you done the sleeper train? I've done the sleeper train. Is it lovely? I I love the sleeper train. When it works, um, they've got brand new carriages and you can now even get sort of en-suite compartments with toilets and stuff. You do it in style. And, and, you know, but even if you don't want to use the sleeper train, which is obviously a bit more expensive, but of course you're not then having to pay for a hotel because you can sleep while you travel. Um, The train from Edinburgh to London, the fast train, is only four hours, 20 minutes. And the last time, many years ago, when I flew... Actually, the nightmare of queuing for over an hour at check-in at, a, at an airport, um, and then the possible delays you sometimes get anyway with flying. Mm. I don't think flying is particularly quicker. Um, yeah, true. It's, yeah. Ch- it's sometimes cheaper, which mm. makes no sense. So one of the things that the government needs to address is the kind of imbalance in the sort of cost of travelling. You know, it makes no sense that it's cheaper to fly than going on a train, and that has to be addressed. So the, going back to the energy, do you think they'll soon they'll make it that we ha- all have to do a green energy, and or will it be that money talks and they're still... Well, what, what you're seeing, and there's a lot of conversations going on about this at the moment, is, is the sort of... Um, the market being scared about the future of fossil fuels. You know, as governments are committing to net zero legislation by 2050, that means that we have to stop kind of drilling our fossil fuels out of the ground, we have to keep them in the ground. And of course, if it becomes cheaper to generate electricity by renewable means, why would you kind of pay more for coal power than wind power? 
So we're going to get very, we're getting very close to a point where it's less viable to kind of, um, kind of be using fossil fuels. And so as that happens, all these big energy companies are going to sort of switch and move to sort of different forms of energy that is environmentally friendly. Yeah. What about wave power? Isn't wave that a thing? Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. It's a brilliant opportunity. It really is. I mean, there's you know, so there, many ways that this can be done. Yeah. There was a huge um, kind of project that they were going to do in, in um, Cardiff, in Cardiff Bay. And I think that sort of got put on hold because of the worries about the costs of building it. But mm. actually, you know, I think that probably needs to be re-looked at. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things that um, people talk about is nuclear energy as being a sort of um, cleaner energy than, um, than, than fossil fuels. The problem is, you know, most nuclear power stations seem to go massively over budget mm. when governments start sort of trying to commission. So not dangerous, though. Well, we've seen what's happened with Fukushima, and yeah. you know, so I, 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 I'm not as comfortable with nuclear energy. No. I mean, it a made lot, me go a bit. A lot of people yeah. think it's part of the mix. Mm. I think actually, what we're seeing is the costs of producing sort of wind power um, are now coming down so quickly that actually. And yeah. Cheaper. Do you do you eat meat? Um, I I I do still occasionally eat meat. I mean, I have a much more vegetarian diet. I haven't mm. gone. I haven't gone vegan. But I've been. I've heard that they. We might all be going. We'll be eating green too, and yeah, there'll be a lot, a lot less beef. Yeah, I mean, you know, the amount of um, carbon. You know, the the. the the, the, the beef and the sort of the meat industry is one of the biggest emitters of carbon. Just yeah, it's, it's the wind from the cows. It's yeah. Um, well, that's methane. So yeah, and, and me, methane is an even even more potent greenhouse yeah, gas than carbon. Really. So yeah. So um, ruminant animals burp up methane, and you know I, I know there's some sort of um, experiments being tried with changing their diets. I believe, I've read something that if you put seaweed in some of their diets, it sort of cuts down the amount really? of meat. I love how much you but know. Then, but then it's also, it's not just about, it's not just about them burping, it's the fact that you're having to clear lots of land to kind of graze these cattle on. And then often you're having to grow crops to feed the cattle, to fatten them up. And, you know, particularly in the Amazon, you know, because there's such a big worldwide appetite for meat, you know, huge areas of the rainforest have been cleared mm. to sort of make way for grazing. And, of course, when you cut down trees in the Amazon, you're cutting down um, one, of the, one of the bits of technology that trap carbon. So yeah. you're, you're making the situation worse. So, you know, and in the UK, a huge amount of our land is put over to grazing and... Um, Perhaps, you know, we need to rewild more of the UK uh, so that it kind of can absorb more carbon. So, so they'll never get rid of cut, those. Cutting down, <laughs> cutting down. But, but what's interesting, though, I mean, that, that since, that since, since this year, you know, we've had veganuary, haven't mm-hmm. we? And lots yeah. of people have been experimenting with So many food. people I know. But also the it's, fast food chains mm, are now starting yeah. to do them, aren't they? Yeah. And I think um, as... You know, the, these big fast food companies suddenly realising that the future is in kind of vegetarian alternatives. I think as more of these things become available, yeah. um, more customers will start making that switch when it becomes easier for people Definitely, to do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, we eat much less meat. I've not ate red meat for quite a while. Really? Um, we tend to sort of 
tend to eat the occasional bit of chicken and sort of fish. Mm. But then you say we, then, you talk about you and your husband. Yeah, well. me, yeah me and Robert. Yeah. And, and your and your dogs. Yeah, the dogs, no, the dog, the dogs. What are the dogs? Are, dogs are difficult. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Yeah, <laughs> they that that's that is a problem because you know I know I know that some people are experimenting on sort of doing dog food made out of insects or things like that. Are they? I've seen something like that. Well, because they eat insects all over the world, yeah. don't they? Would you eat insects? Yeah, no, I'd, yeah. I'd have a go. I've um, I've never really sort of tried it, but no. But um, but if you, I, I, the the way I would view it is that if you want to eat meat, I would also just say try and eat the best quality meat you can. So try and eat sort of orga- organic mm. meat because organic meat uses less fertilizers and pesticides, which are kind of bad for the environment, and also they use less things like sort of antibiotics, which are kind of bad for your health. And usually organic farming is better, uh, higher standards of welfare for the animals. So you're, it's less intensive. So the animals tend to have a better quality of life. So all I would say is if, if people want to eat meat still, just try and eat best, highest quality meat. And perhaps don't have it every day. Just, yeah. just have it occasionally. So the more people that get involved, the better it will be. For the environment, I've literally just had to skip two pages because you've gone. Oh, you've answered. No, it's great. You've answered all the all the other questions without me even asking you. That's how good you okay. are. There. But I've got some climate change facts. I'm yeah, just going to okay. read them out, like because. Uh, well, no, you're, I mean the, the the just the um the concentration of carbon dioxide, CO two in the yeah. atmosphere. Uh, like you said, um, four eleven parts per million. I've got here, but you said it was it's going, high, up every day. going up every day. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and to put that into context, is forty six percent increase since seventeen fifteen before the start of the industrial revolution. So that does show you that it's human caused, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so anyone that's saying, "Oh, you know, this happens," it's, it's... well, there have been periods over. The, I mean, the, the last time I believe that the concentration of CO two in the atmosphere was as big as this was about three hundred million years ago, when dinosaurs ruled. Right. And. And they got wiped out by acid rain or meteors. Well, meteors, you think. But, um, you know, yes, there have been periods where volcanic eruptions put more CO2 in the atmosphere. But first of all, the volcanic CO2 has a different sort of um, kind of fingerprint, if you like, molecular fingerprint. So you can sort of tell the difference. But also, you know, we've known about about burning fossil fuels and what it does for a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a... A newspaper article um, from an American newspaper that was in about the early 1920s, where it was talking about um, you know as the furnaces put more um, burn more coal, the CO2 in the atmosphere will rise and the temperature will go up. We've known about this for a long time, wow. and you know scientists can measure this very accurately. Mm. So we know it's as a result of man-made um, kind of CO2. And I spoke to a scientist a little while ago that said that. You know, when when it goes up so high that that we can't live in certain areas, we'll all be overcrowded. Then we'll mm. run out of food. Then we'll di- all die of disease. Yeah. Is that likely? <laughs> well, that's what Extinction Rebellion kind of why why they're so concerned. Um, what and you're scientists... pro them, right? You're... Well, I think I think Extinction Rebellion have had. I don't agree with everything that they sort of say, but I think Extinction Rebellion have been good at helping raise the. Well, they've only been around two awareness. years, so yeah. the fact that we all know who they are, absolutely, is quite incredible. But but what scientists tell us very clearly is that um, we are trying very hard to stop temperatures going above one and a half degrees. We we think that's going to be difficult to do because it requires huge action. So what they're then saying is that two degrees should be considered the absolute minimum 
or maximum, maximum that we go yeah. to rather. Yeah. So we're already at 1.1 degrees, so we've got to stop the, the planet warming by another degree. Um, and so to do that, we need to cut the amount of carbon dioxide globally that we put into the atmosphere by half every decade for the is next 30 years. Is that doable then? It is doable, but it's doable at the scale of a revolution. It's mm. not business as normal. No. Everything, you know, the United Nations say to do that, it requires kind of a rapid... Uh, transformation of the kind of whole of society. So everything we do has got to be done slightly differently. And that's why we love David Attenborough. That's why we love David Attenborough. Making it. (laughs) But one one of the things that we're doing in the UK at the moment is um, to try and work out how we're going to address these and what the solutions are. Um, Parliament have recently convened a Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change. So they've had 110 normal Brits. So these are people that kind of just like, you know, just like, you Joe and Joe yeah, yeah. Some of them might be sort of concerned about it, some of them might be sceptics, they come from all parts of the country, and they're coming together um, for four long residential weekends where they'll be told the facts by scientists and they'll be given the sort of solutions and the choices that we need to make. Wow. And at the end of that, those people are going to try and work out what they think they would be willing to do, and those recommendations will go to government to try and give the government some sort of encouragement yeah. that... Um, that the public are behind this, yeah. that, you know, because it will require uh, governmental changes. It will require changes in legislation. It will require changes in taxation. You know, we may have to be paying more tax to travel by air, mm. and that's going to have an impact on, yeah. on what people choose. Have to you do. ever thought about becoming an MP? Uh, I, I've, I've always been interested in politics, and I sort of I admire MPs, but um, I sometimes think that. You can also be effective outside of Parliament, mm. sort of trying to, to sort of inspire and people. And you are. And, and, and you know, what, what I think in our industry is, you know, in the television industry, we have a huge role to play in, um, in trying to tell stories. You know, I think um, trying to tell these positive stories about what a sort of low-carbon future could look like, you know, trying to tell, you know, new dramas and, you know, new, new comedy programmes. I'm surprised that comedy hasn't been used to communicate kind of climate change. Um, you need to make a, a comedy show. Well, you? I'm talking to people about Are you? This yeah. is good. This, this is, is news good. off the this, press. This is good. So <laughs> I've, I've recently set up um, a kind of production company called Picture Zero um, right. with a couple of colleagues and we're trying to sort of make some, some new programme, new content. Fantastic. So we're talking to people. We're making, at the moment, a documentary about the Citizens' Assembly, which is interesting. That's so, brilliant. So oh, wow. Stay tuned for yes. more news on that. So you're changing the world. Well, trying, trying to I, do Now, it. I know you're going off to record the Graham Norton Show very soon, so I won't keep you much longer. <laughs> but just a couple more facts. Um, so we talked about the world getting hotter and that last that London was warmest ever. It's ever been recorded last year. Sea levels rising, the fa- fastest rate in about 3,000 years. It's an average of three millimetres per year, which is, doesn't sound much, but... It's uh, it's the, in, in Indonesia. They're moving their capital city, which I said, sinking twenty five centimeters per year, which is a lot. That's quite scary. Absolutely. The average wildlife size of populations has dropped by sixty percent in the last fifty years, um, and we are driving uh, species to extinction. So that's scary. 
Uh, I'm reading all these so that people that are, are listening go, I am quite in- interested in thinking, yeah. shit, we need to do something. Um, Earth Overshoot Day, now this is interesting, is a symbolic uh, day on humanity's consumption for the year when it outstrips Earth's capacity to re- re- regenerate those resources that year. So, for instance, it's getting earlier each year. In 1999, it was the 29th of September that we could, that we're overshooting. Now it's the 29th of July last year. That's a lot. That means that we're eating and consuming more... Resources at yeah. such, a, such an extent we can't kind of carry on producing. No, due to deforestation, I can't say these words, I'm too big, soil erosion, overfishing and CO2 build-up. And then uh, dengue fever... Right, this is a thing, mm-hmm. uh, could spread by 2050. It's the fastest growing mosquito borne virus and it's killing 10,000 people a year. Yeah, no, what, what, we're, what, what scientists are worried about is as kind of Europe heats up and warms up, some of those kind of uh, tropical diseases yeah, they can, can migrate further north. And, yeah. you know, we might want to put barriers up to stop migrants coming to the UK. But we, but can't, we can't stop, stop the mosquitoes. No, so, so. this is serious shit. Already in the UK, we're now having problems with ticks because because we don't get those kind of really cold winters that we sometimes used to get, which would kill off some of these things. You know, ticks are able to sort of um, breed more and, you know, so ticks give Lyme's disease and that's already becoming a problem in the UK. Oh, we're all going to die. <laughs> At some point. The floods and heavy rains has quadrupled since 1980, doubled since 2004. I mean, this is, I mean, it's, it's extreme cheery, temperatures, it? droughts, wildfires, they're all spreading. Yeah. It's, uh, how can we make it cheery? Well, one of the things I think you have to remember is that we've never had before so many opportunities to change this. You know, we do have the technologies to allow us to use renewable energy. Mm. We can stop using fossil fuels if we want to. And, you know, in the end, it requires committed individuals to try and do their bits. You know, you can only do so much mm. as, as an individual, but if everybody did, did a few things, then that quickly sort of mounts up. So I think I it's started recycling, that. is that helping? It is. I mean, I, I would say, you know, the big thing that you could do is switch your energy supply yes, I'm to, definitely a, to do that. a renewable energy source, 100%. that would be really good. Um, but yeah, you know, if you can change your diet a bit, if you can change the way you shop, mm. and if you can... Kind of, Change where I shop as in... Well, do you need to kind of... You know, fashion, for example, is an incredibly um, carbon-intensive... <laughs> you know, so but these are second-hand trousers. Well, that's brilliant. Yeah. So, you know, can we can we recycle stuff? Can we um, can we buy more stuff from um, second-hand shops and mm. charity? Can we make our own clothes? Can we alter things? Make so do that an they end. Have, We're exactly, back there, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, also, though, in the way that we shop for food, you know... Um, apart from meat and whether you eat that or not, try and shop um, for things that are seasonal mm-hmm. and things that are produced locally. So if you can cut down the food miles that, you know, shop stuff travels. So don't buy strawberries out of season. Only buy strawberries when they're kind of in season in the UK, for example. Right, you yeah. Know. Also, you know, when, when you sort of um, shop for stuff, you know, um, you know can, can you kind of, you know, get stuff from sort of second-hand shops, you know, do you always make sure that you can recycle stuff and make what, sure what it doesn't get to landfill? Yeah, what about toiletries and sort of like cleaning products? Well, it's interesting because there are lots of people that sort of um, use natural cleaning products, which you can do. So things like, you know, vinegar and mm. salt and 
lemon juice are quite lemon juice is incredible yeah yeah yeah. so do you necessarily need all the chemicals and of course remember those chemicals that you kind of use for cleaning then go into the water system as well so we're going back to basics a little we are are. shows us we had it right a few years ago in a way you know if you think about some of the things that we had to do during the second world war I say we I wasn't around but during the second world Mm. war when you know um People grew more of their own food and, you know, had to I mean, be that's invented. the dream. I bet you grow your own food, do you? No. I bet you've got an endowment or a massive no, garden. I, we, we, do, we do a bit. No. We, we, we have a, bit, a, a few things that we sometimes yeah. grow in the garden. I can imagine. It's lovely. Yeah. In it's the countryside. Nice. So just to finish off, we can't have you on the podcast without talking about the fact that not only do you have a career as a director, producer, executive producer for over 30 years... But you play a leading role on the board of Directors UK, promoting the work of all directors and training the next generation. We're very lucky to have you here. <laughs> How did you become chair of Directors UK? Well, um, Directors UK is a sort of, um, it, it's a collecting society, so it collects the royalties that, um, that get paid to directors for the use of their material secondary use of their material. But it's also a sort of trade organisation and a membership society and a few years ago, I was sort of asked to um, join the board to help represent multi-camera directors that weren't being represented. And, um, you know, I, I thought it was important to do that because I think it's important to try and give something back to the industry. I've been very lucky in the industry over the time I've worked in it. I'm very good, and, and obviously. Well, well yeah. yeah, sort of, sometimes. <laughs> but... Yeah, so I, I sort of joined and um, joined the board and realised what was great about it is as a director, generally you work on your own. You don't often work with other directors. And what was really interesting is being in an organisation that had other directors for you to sort of share stories and sort of mm. concerns and things. And I think what I found very quickly was um, sometimes as freelancers, we all think that directors are in competition with you and they're all trying to steal your job. Actually, that's not true. They seem really generous with their time and really happy to sort of help. So um, I found it a very inclusive place. And um, so the more I sort of um, got involved, the more I sort of enjoyed, um, you know, being part of a community of directors, sort of helping support other directors. And as I've been on the board for a few years, you know, um, other people sort of moved off the board and uh, I was asked to sort of become chair um, a couple of years ago, which I said yes to, and it's been a real privilege. It's been it's been good. So you know, we we do a lot of stuff. You know, we've been campaigning for diversity and gender equality. You know, we've done campaigns about Me Too. We've um, recently done a campaign about bullying and harassment, and we've produced some really excellent guidelines in a booklet, giving people advice about what to do if they face bullying and harassment at work. Another thing that we've done recently is a set of guidelines about. Um, sort of a framework for directing intimate scenes and nudity, you know, because sometimes you suddenly realise that directors and actors don't quite know what the rules of the Mm. game are and what's acceptable and what people should ask for and how to sort of navigate these things. So we thought it was really useful to put down some of these in a sort of booklet to give people some guidance, which has been really well accepted. Um, We also do campaigning over health and safety and sort of, you know, campaigning for pay and stuff like that. And... um, as a membership organisation, try to support the work of directors, but also try to sort of help the next generation directors mm-hmm. by mentoring and giving career advice and stuff like that. So it's 
you know, it's really rewarding. I mean, my, my job on the board is very simple. I just sort of chair some meetings and, you know, there's a team of full-time staff there that yeah. are the real people that make it all happen. Yeah, being very authoritative, I bet you come in and, you know, with all your knowledge. Well, and... I think, you know, when you've worked in the industry for sort of 30 years or so, you sort of, you know, pick up a, a lot of experience and sometimes it's good to be able to pass it on to other people. Yeah. You say in you're a way always that, learning. No, you are, but you say in a way that... Like, I'm always, like, quizzing you, and I? I love your brain. <laughs> you say it in a way that just sounds so intelligent. Oh, that's kind of you say so. It's <laughs> well, you know, I think that. Um, but it, uh, going back to the what, freelance world, especially directors working on their own, uh, I'm a floor manager. We're very much the same. We sort yeah. of, You don't really get many floor managers on one show. Yeah. So we all kind of, there is a bit of a, you feel like it's a competitive thing. You kind of feel like you're on your own with the bullying, the harassment, and, you know, the worrying. It, it's it's great for you that you have that su- supportive network. Yeah, I think it's important. And I think in the end, you know, once we evolved our industry to a very freelance way of working, I think people do feel quite lonely. And, yeah. you know, we also know, you know, one of the areas we're focusing on at the moment is mental health. You know, we know that a lot of freelancers suffer from... Yeah you know, mental health problems. And you don't have the support of an HR department that you might do if you're staff somewhere. And, you know, it can be quite a lonely place. So coming together and sort of uh, trying to support each other and organise things together is really important. It's, it's definitely true. I think it's one of the most lonely yeah. jobs and I think we all need to talk about and, it. And, and it has that um, sort of sense that it's really glamorous. Um, and it can be glamorous sometimes, but actually... The reality of TV work is that it's long hours. It's not necessarily that well paid, and um, and it's it's hard work. Isn't yeah, it? it does have the reputation of being glamorous. But I came here on the tube today and sat next to Graham Norton. He didn't. I didn't say hello to him because everyone was staring at him, and I thought was well, the tube? he was sat next to me. I only noticed him because he had dog hairs on his arm. <laughs> and I was like, so I, I thought if I said hi to him. Everyone would then notice it was him and then bombard him. So you know each other so really I, well, so the two of you just sitting there. Kind of I don't think he saw me, and I, I noticed it was him, and he had his head in a book, and I thought, I can't draw attention to him. That's good. And yeah. it shows that Graham is travelling in an eco-friendly way exactly, to work. Exactly, what a dream. And you now have to go off and direct the Graham Norton show, so yeah, good luck Don't ask me who's on tonight, because I've forgotten Alicia already. Keys is on. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I just wanted to rehearse her. Thank you so much for Pleasure. your knowledge. Um, I really enjoyed that. Good fun. Thank, Thank you. you. That's it for now. Love you for listening and don't forget to show love. Thank you to Ollie Trevers and Danny Wright for their great music and Alex McArdle for the edit. Please follow us at Show Love UK on social media and feel free to spread the love by telling your friends. Thank you. Self-stimulation, instant gratification I'm self-medicating, therapist recommending More meditating, wasted education I need more aberration And I, I don't wanna bother with
Stadium and my name carved in the pavement 